Hello and welcome back to episode 10 of Bike Karma. Today we have an interview with Jim Barnard from the New England Muscle Bike Museum. Remember all those cool chopper bikes and crate bikes and muscle bikes, hot rods from back in the day? We're going to talk all about those and even one associated with the Batmobile. We also go to Iceland, was lucky enough to go, and go to a place right in Reykjavik and talk to Hannes Janssen. He works at a place called Bicycle Berlin. He's a really cool guy. And we just stood around in the bike shop they works at and talked about what it's like bicycling in Iceland and around Reykjavik. I also wonder what you guys would have said if you were in one of those invariably awkward situations that us cyclists sometimes find ourselves in so I'm going to present that scenario to you and ask for your advice. So if you've never been here before, welcome. It is a podcast about all kinds of bicycles and all kinds of people. Whether you're wrenching, riding, collecting, buying, selling, trading, donating, involved in bicycle advocacy, any of that, it's all here. Thanks for coming along for the ride. of us growing up in the 60s and 70s meant that motorcycles were cool and being a little kid unless you're a real real badass you couldn't get a motorcycle and so you had to make do with your bicycle and the more your bicycle looked like a motorcycle the cooler it would be so we're going to take a look at that whole phenomenon right now the pre-bmx was the muscle bike phenomenon. You might know them as crate bikes, you might know them as the lemon peelers or the stingrays or many, many different names. Raleigh had them, uh, Schwinn had them, Murray had them, Huffy had them, everybody had them. So here we go with an interview from Jim Barnard who used to run the Bloomfield Muscle Bike Museum. And I'm sad I never got a chance to see it, but I'm, but I'm really grateful that I got a chance to talk to him about that period in history. And he'll be the first one to tell you that period is not over, man, because those bikes are still hot today. Uh, we're going to even talk about one that has a connection with the Batmobile. So find out. So let's find out what that's all about. I'm here with Jim Barnard, who is a muscle bike enthusiast formerly ran the Muscle Bike Museum, which was in Bloomfield, Connecticut. Yeah. Involved with all kinds of things in the biking scene around Connecticut and beyond. Really happy to finally score a chance to talk to you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So you want to tell us a little bit about what a muscle bike is? <laughs> Every time. AMCA meet in Hebron, and there'll be a lot of motorcycle noises. And Bob And the motorcycles leave us. Alright, so, what is a muscle bike for the people who wouldn't know? Muscle bike is um, a banana bike or a high-riser that was designed to mimic the dragsters and muscle cars of the 60s. Um, Raleigh, of course, made the chopper, and Schwinn made the Stingray. Uh, everybody got on the bandwagon after a while and produced their own copy. Crazy kind of sold, and they were relatively dangerous heavy bikes, but they were rolling works of art, and you didn't really 
learn good biking habits from them, but you learned how to survive and you learned how to have fun. About 69 or so is uh, the pinnacle, the height of the craziness with the, the design. And they kind of started 63 and a half with Schwinn and Columbia, Huffy, and they, then they peaked in 69 and uh, they kind of got legislated out of, out of our society by the Ralph Naders of the world in 73 and limped along maybe till 77. Okay, so these would be like crate bikes. What are some of the, when you see a bike, what would you hear? You'd have the Raleigh Chopper, you know, is one of the names. You'd have the Lemon Crate, you'd have the Orange Crate. What are some of the other famous ones that people might have heard of and not realized that it was a part of that group? I like the uh, um, slingshots. They were designed to, um, a little bit of a longer bike. And, I, and, and forgive me, but I kind of look back at the, the bicycles from my standpoint as an adult getting reintroduced to them. So I gently gravitate towards the bigger bikes. Raleigh Chopper, great rideable machine. Schwinn Stinger is great rideable machine. Slingshots, great design, very rideable. Um, Columbia had play bikes. Um, just every permutation had a, a unique name to it. So looking into the history of bikes, you know, we have several incarnations of bikes and we've, we've lived through a few different changes in the scene. So you had the balloon tire bikes yep. and then they started to wane a little bit Yep. Uh, because they were kind of heavy. You had the incoming of the lightweight bikes. Sure. And some of the racing started to become a little bit more popular and then to kind of re-enthuse that market what was the first muscle bike that really got people charged up again into that style of bicycle? I, I believe it was the, the Stingray is the one that really started things. I, I think that uh, Huffy or Columbia, and I, I forgive me for not remembering which one, had one a, around the same time. But um, as retold in the classic Stingray, that a book that Liz Fried did, there's um, a, a story about how the kids in San, in San Francisco and and the California coastline were playing bicycle polo. Good afternoon. Matter of fact, the, the first bicycle banana seats weren't really banana seats, they were called solo polo seats. And I believe that was because they were able to access on and off the bike very, very easily with the banana seat. So, the, so basically what they did is they took, kids were starting to wane a little bit, they wanted to get towards the motorized stuff, and the muscle cars came along, and they were like, really, kids were like looking more forward to being able to drive a car than they were to ride the bike that they had been riding the sure, decade yeah. before, and then they were looking at motorcycles as well, so the company said to themselves, let's make a bike that looks like a motorcycle, that looks just friggin' cool and you want to be on it and it's more absolutely of a, it's it's not that you're going to ride it across the country but you're going to ride it down the street and you're going to feel like you are you know got something to be envied that you're on. absolutely now those uh the cues that they used on the design was the the color line tires um, raleigh of course chose red the the slick tire itself is stolen directly from a dragster the 1620 look that was very popular with the muscle bikes was another dragster uh, nod with the larger back wheels and the smaller front wheels. Um, at, at some point during the um, creation of the banana bikes, they, they, they also used raised white letters, uh, which was from the dragsters and from the, uh, the, the, the funny cars. It just cars. looks cool. Absolutely, just looks good. And the, the stick shifter and suspension 
all these things were added that didn't help you bike, but it didn't it help really, you when you fell. Didn't help you when you <laughs> fell, but it made it so it was um, a unique thing unto itself. These muscle bikes, they have this place in history where some people say you know they were unsafe. Some people say that they were one of the things that made bicycles turn into more of a kid's thing for a decade than an adult thing. And yet people love them, you know, and I'm, I'm just I'm just saying that, that you walk into any camp of bicycle people and you'll hear those three arguments put around is that they're awesome. They turn bikes into a kid's thing. And then three, they're unsafe because you got a stick shift right where you're yeah, gonna, right where your business goes. Yeah. So where, when you got into it big time, where were you coming from? You said you got into it as an adult, more going backwards. A little bit of a nostalgia thing. I mean, I had in, under the Christmas tree in 1970 it was a Raleigh Chopper. I still remember it, and I, I have not found um, uh, an adequate duplicate of it yet. What color um, was it? It was uh, the metallic blue, with white letters. It had the the black seat with the springs, the uh, orange strap. Um, it had an SC3, so it was a skitter. Yet it was a three-speed. It was just a wonderful hub. Uh, had the round knob with the three R's on it. So that was that was a 1970 uh, Raleigh Chopper, and it was it was really what the neighborhood kids were doing. And I imagine what the neighborhood kids did where you were from was quite dependent on what bike shop was near you. If you had a Schwinn dealership, you, you saw the Stingrays. If you had a Raleigh dealership, you saw the Choppers. If you lived by Sears, you saw the Spiders. That's where I came from, and, and I, I had a great childhood. And uh, you know, When I was a kid um, growing up, nothing but great memories, and having this bike was one of those great memories. It freed up um, my myself to be able to go to the center of town, which is only two miles away, but when you're walking, or if you're, you're very young, you're, you're not getting there. So under my own speed, with this bike, I could do that. I mean, to a kid, a bike is freedom. It is, yeah. You know, at least, at least back in the day, it yep. was, you know, you, you escaped. Yeah, I <laughs> remember being so bike. disappointed reading that Sheldon Brown had uh, pretty much the, uh, the banana bikes and said they were bad for the hobby and the industry. And I just disagree. I know he's dead now, so we won't talk bad about the dead, but that was a very selfish point of view. I think that at any point, you can take a look at any movement and take something bad out of it or something good out of it. And yeah, I think, yeah. I think the, honest sure, truth, the honest truth is that you know, there's always two edges to that sword. Yeah, and, and I'm sure kids got hurt on him, and I'm sure Ralph Nader was right. Um, in, in that these could be designed safer, but kids don't really want safety. You know, they want to be cool. They want to be accepted. They want to stand out and, and at the same time be part of a crowd and a posse. And, uh, and this is in a time so. before we even wore helmets. And oh, yeah. I mean, you've gone over the handlebars on your bike, I'm sure. I I've gone over sure. the handlebars with and without a helmet. And as an adult, <laughs> I'm glad of the invention of helmets, but... Yeah these days I need one <laughs> yeah but but back in those days it's amazing how many people didn't get killed who it, were riding it is yeah and we, we were tougher for it I think now what came around after that so you got that you're just a little bit older than me if you don't mind me saying no go right ahead because I was born in 70 yep and so the next thing I saw when when I was getting up there is the huge upsurge in 10 speeds 
when I was really young. Sure, I remember. So 10 speeds came out, and they were out selling cars for a couple of years, and, and people were cranking them out in all kinds of... Uh, all kinds of quality levels yeah and some were crap and some were awesome and by the time i got old enough to be the teen to go exploring and stuff they were no longer cool and bmx's which you you might say is like the star trek next generation of muscle bikes (laughs) you might hate them like an original star trek fan or you might kind of tolerate them being the original fan but they were kind of like the bmx was kind of like the second reincarnation of that yeah. smaller bike cool motorcycle I looking the, the Schwinn Hurricane may, may be that missing link there because that had the stingray frame and it kind of went uh, to the crossbar uh, on the handlebars of the low rise um, and I don't I think there was a, a single saddle on that not the banana seat a- absolutely uh, those those bikes the um, motocross bikes not so much part of my my experience I do remember jumping the chopper over garbage cans which was quite a feat in itself because you you, you didn't fly well or land well on a chopper did you ever do one of the poorly made ramps where you hit the <laughs> ramp and yeah where right away it's the uh, 45 degree like bang bang and up in air yeah so that's good because you do go into the air dazed and that, that's a great way to be in the air <laughs> gotta let some air out of the back tire that helps too yeah, yeah. Um, I can remember building the, the BMX track, but we didn't have those bikes yet. Um, when I was a kid, we would go to Sears and buy accessories off the shelf and, and buy knobby traction grip tires and, and crossbars and, and numbers and number them ourselves. So in a way, just like the evolution of the mountain bike was a bunch of repackers up on Marin, you know, and they were going down on these old balloon tire bikes that they had modified because they they weren't there. You couldn't walk into a store and say, I want this downhill bike. Yeah, you, yeah, you, you had to make it. it. So you guys were basically taking the old crate bikes and the old muscle bikes and turning them into the functional equivalent of what later became a BMX because you couldn't walk out and buy one. Yeah, my, my chopper had been broken and repaired 17 times. Oh my God. Yeah, the, the frame had been broken. And I was rough with it. it. We we had ghost rides. We had ghost jumps too, where we'd send the bike over. A, um, I remember this tree root in my front yard that had about an eight foot drop on the other side of it. And I would book running with the bike across the yard and, and throw it on at the, the stump. It would ghost ride for maybe ten feet, hit the stump, and we would try to take pictures of it all by itself in the air and uh, <laughs> some funny stuff. <laughs> what part of the country did you grow up in? I, I grew up, uh, we're, we're in Hebron now in Connecticut, and I grew up in Bloomfield. My family's been there since 1735, so. Uh, wow. Yeah, we don't move much, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. So when, when you, east, I mean, I gotta go back to this. You mm-hmm. broke your bike need to be, re- the frame needed to be repaired 17 times. Yeah, yeah, my, my uncle had worked for Pratt & Whitney and he would uh, just get the torch out again, braze it. Probably the brazing is the reason that it broke again and again and again. So the lugs? Uh, I would have it break at uh, where the twin top tubes cross the seat tube. It would break at that that flange there, simply because you're standing on the pedals, everything, all the pressure's on the wheels front and back, so the natural flex point is gonna be right there at the, uh, is that a dropout? No, that's the, the crank. Where the crank is anyway mm-hmm. um that's where it breaks i've had it break by the dropout on the rear uh sissy stays i guess you'd call those top and bottom wow 
I'm remembering stuff as I'm talking to you. My first bike, I did not want. In fact, I, I was I was pretty upset to get it because I had this huge long Christmas list mm -hmm. of like a hundred little trinkets and doodads, and then I got this rectangular looking box underneath the tree, and <laughs> it wasn't any of the trinkets and doodads. And I sat there in the morning before I could open it up, and I was staring at it, going, "How do they fill all the trinkets and doodads into such a narrow box?" Uh, yeah. And then you opened it up, and it's the middle of winter. You and can't ride it forever. It's unassembled. Yeah. And so it's a green Polish Tyler bike, which was in um, the muscle bike style. Yeah. And I remember my dad trying to make it look cooler as I got older. So as I grew up with that bike, he took and welded a bar across the handlebars. <laughs> so that it would right, look yeah. more like a BMX bike, and then I put the BMX padding yeah, on top of it that I could the, get at the, the special department grips. store. Yeah. Yep. So I remember some of that. Yeah. Yeah. And we made do. <laughs> yep. You know, that, that, that chopper um, ended, ended up coming to me at a time where my mom had been in the hospital and my dad did the Christmas shopping. Normally, you never get, I mean, the chopper was a $100 present. You'd, that's outlandish. So. I mean, it was a really high quality bike for what it was you know it wasn't yeah. it wasn't a it wasn't a disposable bike like you would say no. go to Walmart and buy a bike this was a bike that you had to make a commitment to buy yeah. at the time yeah yeah it definitely, it definitely wanted breathing going to buy a bike back in the day yep. you know correct me if I'm wrong was kind of like going to a car dealership if you mm -hmm. know you said you know if you had a Schwinn dealership next to you you'd, you'd get Schwinn's. It was kind of like, you know, walking into a Chevy dealership, you can't get a Toyota there. But there are some brands where you can get the same from, from yeah. the same place. But you would walk in, and they would have their line of bikes. Sure. You know, just from the entry level upwards. They'd be one but in the they window, would be, and that would hook you, and you'd, you'd go downstairs, and there'd be like 12 of them lined up, all the front red line tires in a row, and you got to pick from a 10-speed. If your daddy got no job, yeah, there was a coaster bike for you. There was the three speeds, there was the five speeds, uh, high backrest. It was just a smorgasbord of, uh, of choices and colors. And then if you waited a little while, if you couldn't afford it, they would eventually trickle down to the department stores. But the department store bikes, like the Western Autos sure. and the Bennies and the Zares and all that stuff, they were still getting the American knockoffs. So they were yep. still like a decent bike. They weren't. Well, yeah, they weren't as high a quality. But you were getting the Huffies, and you were getting the other bikes that were. At, at that point, they were cranking out some lower end. I toured the Columbia factory um, years and years ago, and one of the things they had there was a wall that had all the different badges that they had made, Columbias, for other other you know Western Auto or for. Um, uh, Eaton's or, or other 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 stores that would get these and sell them under their own name. Yep, the yeah. stamped the stamped forks and stuff like that, where you don't have the the lugs on the ends, mm -hmm. you know, and whatnot. Yeah. You can say what you want about them, but I can still take, and I'm sure you have too. You can take one of those bikes that's 50 years old, and you can get it running. You know, you it's yeah. still it's still serviceable today. So it yep. wasn't it wasn't the enjoyable quality. It was, but it was a, a a lasting quality. Yeah, up to about 72, I know that the chrome was still really good uh, on at least the import bikes. Schwinn kept the quality up very well right through the run of all the banana bikes. Um, but uh, other, you know, other companies, not, not, not so much. 
So let me ask you this. You had a museum to these, and I was unable to go to it because I wasn't really into the hobby mm -hmm. until like two years after that is when I really started yep. looking at it. So tell me about this museum. The museum was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Absolutely a labor of love. Um, I started by thinking what I want to do is I want to get on. I want to get to find the Raleigh Chopper as a kid. And then it became, well, this chopper isn't the right color, but I'd like to get it anyway. So I, 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 saved, I saved a certain amount of money every week on my paycheck, put it towards uh, the muscle bikes, the banana bikes, and kind of focused on choppers first. Never thought I'd own a Schwinn because those crate bikes were, even in that, that time, they were $500 bikes. Um, and I'm not saying I never bought one and parted it out to, to make some money to buy something I wanted. But um, I started to see in areas looking for choppers other brands. And so I started to pick these up. At a certain point, after going to all of the bike shops within 300 miles, leaving my card and saying if these show up or if somebody brings them in, I uh, would like to have a, a shot at it. I began getting um, people coming to me with their collections. I have this, I've had this forever. I have five of these, I've got 30 of these. Oh and, and what I ended up doing, um, and this is how I, I made the museum, is I would buy all of them and then resell the ones I have doubles of and then keep the, the few gems there. And in this way I amassed probably 140 high-end original paint um, uh, bikes of, of an astonishing variety. Uh, very, very um, proudly made a website that also showed all these and, and had pictures of them. And I winged it. Um, or is it Wong? I wonder winged it. And it's pretty much um, what I thought at the time. And if I didn't have facts, I would explain the impact on me rather than you know exactly how it was made or who designed it. Uh, but it was a fun time. And, and in order to, to take the hobby to the next level, we had rides, we had a show. Well, probably every three weeks, we would either go into Hartford somewhere and um, we would go bar hopping on the banana bikes. And I can remember we would have skidding contests and wheelie contests. I've had two bikes stolen uh, during this time. Um, I've had a, someone try to steal a bike and, and actually knock a whole line of about 20 uh, banana bikes over because they're all locked together. And that was, that was, that was pretty hilarious, I thought. <laughs> um, but at one point, we I think 42 was the most bikes we had, and that was a very cool attendance. That was the night before one of the, uh, the shows. We had people from California, um, uh, uh, Cuba, we had English people there. It was, and all, of course, all across the U.S., so it was it was cool and it was fun and it was relatively innocent. That's cool. And that that's kind of the same type of vibe I've tried to get with our show in Weathersfield. Mm -hmm. And yep. I would I would love to have you guys if you're available come to our next show, which is going to be next June second. We'd, we'd love to second Sunday. I mean, yep. I think what I'm trying to do with this podcast is. You know, like there are people who are just in these little tribes and they don't leave yeah. those tribes. Right. And, you know, if you're a road biker, if you're a mountain biker, if you're if you grew up with bikes, you look at any bike and if you're open to it, there's something awesome there. You know, there's some sure. great story. There's something you can connect with. And I think that there is a connection between if you if you ride a road bike every day of your life, but you come up upon, uh, you know, the first mountain bike ever 
at a museum and you look at it, you're going to be like, I connect with that a little bit. Sure, if, yeah. As long as you're not closing it down. And I think that that's what's cool with bikes is that yeah. you can, you can, you're not going to be great at it, but you can hop off of a muscle bike onto a 10 speed, onto a balloon tire, onto a, like an 1892 bike like I get a chance to ride at the last show sure you know and you're like damn this is this is part of the stream of history that I'm riding on and bicycles have been a big part of it yeah yeah uh, bicycle people are 99% wonderful um, I mean it, it's, it is the greatest invention ever I think yeah yeah it seems <laughs> I think fire yeah. you know which has downsides Fire. It does, yeah, yeah. It's but bikes, two-edged sword too, isn't it? Not so much, right? It's, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's been good, clean fun for a long time, and a lot of people put their their hearts into it. Um, and I think that uh, if you can tie this to something, perhaps like a, a Volkswagen meet, mm -hmm. um, those are the same people as the bicycle people, and there's an awful lot going on that they, they share in common. Um, Cross-populating a show would be kind of fun. I, I mean, you had bands at your swap meet. Yeah, had, go figure. You had, yeah. you. it was like Woodstock. <laughs> I mean, that's that's what we all aspire to when we go to set out and do something like that. But, uh, yeah, yeah. That, that was those that was fun times. It really broke my heart when it rained, and it rained so many times. I don't know, we did it seven or eight years running, but... Um, if we did it eight years, it rained seven of them. <laughs> it rained last year for us for the first time. Uh, we've, it, got yeah. a, we've got a school gym, and next year we'll have the gym and the cafeteria. Right, so you filled the gym? Yeah. That's fabulous. Filled the gym, had people on the outsides. You should get you my old mailing list and see how many people are still around. For That'd me. be cool. Yeah. That'd be very cool. Yeah. So is there any particular, like, one story about finding a bike and buying it that kind of stands out? You know, like uh, a lot of people, regardless, you know, what genre you like, you have that mythical quest for your holy grail. Yeah, never found know? the holy grail. It would be my, my bike, my color, my year. But I can remember um, for for time, I was really into the George Barris Irisons. And they were somewhat hard to find. Um, they were such a crappy construction that they would break. I'm sure they feel filled plenty of dumpsters. So this is the Iversons. These were the ones that... The name was basically to try and get Ivor Johnson a yeah, little possibly, bit, to try and ride on the coattails of that. I'm sure they would do something like that. Uh, it was Stelbra Industries out of New York, and they decided to take the crazy route rather than the well-built route. And the crazy route, um, very, very neat designs by Barris, who of course designed the Batmobile, the Monkey Mobile. Um, but there was a, a lady that had a Rogue, and I hadn't really seen a Rogue anywhere before. Um, I've seen very few pictures of collectors having them, and I've, I think I had some brochures and maybe a comic of the Eye Patrol. And I remember that I chased it for years, and she moved away to Florida, and she still would call me every once in a while. And finally, she agreed to sell the thing, and she hammered me, and I'll be honest, I've paid $3,100 for this bike, and I flew to Florida went to her house and I took it apart and I put it in my luggage and then I flew back and I was so worried about shipping it that you know to me it was irreplaceable so I, I, I really um, I really went out of my way to make sure that I had all the parts um, 
and that that was that was great. That was a nice. Um, it was a nice feeling to, after all those years, come down with the prize, um, because you're just a uh, you know a lost wallet away from her not having my phone number or or something. I believe she played me because it started at like 400 bucks, and you know every time she increased it every few months she would uh, you know give me a call and we talk about it and she'd act like she's gonna send it to me but. Um, yeah, I got played like a banjo, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> so did you, um, do you still have that bike? No. Just recently, a good friend of mine who, who actually owns the New England Muscle Bicycle Museum website, um, he purchased, uh, I think, 11 Barris Iversons that I had all signed by George Barris before he died. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, I took all the, I hopped on a plane, went to, was it North Hollywood, I think, is where his shop was? And I, I bought an hour of his time. I booked it with his son, Joji. And he was gracious. And I had a suitcase full of all the chain guards. Signed them all. He went back into his shelves and got me original paperwork and some design pictures. And um, let me stand next to two Batmobiles. And, and just left me alone with the monkey mobile. It was just crazy. That's uh, very cool. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was fun. So can we see pictures of these on the website that you mentioned? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, so what would that website be? That'd be nemusclebikes.com. nemusclebikes.com. Yep. And who runs that? What are your friends runs that? Uh, a, a, a great collector named Mark Wilson. Um, a real prince among collectors. Good cool. chap. So are there any future plans for any more displays? Oh, man. Um... You know, is it I really, something you hold out there like I, you know, I, I do it again at some point to do it. I do start or? making motions towards it, and then I have to slap the crap out of myself because, you know, I've been there. There's no way in today's economy um, you're gonna be able to do that again. You know, uh, not for anything reasonable. Uh, I, I created a very nice collection, very reasonably. Matter of fact, it didn't cost me a penny after I figured out how to do it. Um, now it would you just need to be... teach me that trick. <laughs> <laughs> you got to be able to let go some very very nice things to um, that you've purchased and, and keep the things that you, you really need, not that just you want. I think if you know you have one sign in every bicycle collector shop, mm -hmm. it should be the goal is not to have all the toys, but the goal is to have ridden all the toys. <laughs> Um, I loved looking at them. I would, you could I would, ride them and sell them. If I was ever bummed out, um, I would sit in the museum. I would I'd turn on... Somebody who's having a great time. Yeah, yeah. And just again, where are we for the people Yeah, listening? we're at the um, Antique Motorcycle Club of America's Hebron Swap Meet. Which is really cool. Um, it's a gorgeous day, and uh, everybody's out having a good time. It's hot as crap, but it's summer, so I guess that happens. And the french fries are good. Yeah. I've had the perfect amount of salt on it. <laughs> yeah. Matter of fact, that's W calling. Uh, she pretty much ran that museum with me. I know she wanted to be here, but she uh, she's one of these poor people that have to work. Well, I'm sure you got plenty of stories, and we could do another segment. Yeah, I would love I'll invite to. you over uh, to my house. We'll sit around the fire. Yeah. Show you my bike hoard. I'd love to see <laughs> that. We got to get down to Waterford too. That's that's where I have probably a 
40 foot chunk of the the racks that I had in the museum still and I made a real nice spot for them down there and nice. I think uh, I think I can show you probably 19 or 20 of my keepers and we should do that drunk history thing yeah that'd be fun drunk bicycle history drunk bicycle history <laughs> you could you could go off on Nader <laughs> and he did what he did I'm sure he saved a lot of lives um, and I got it before it all went to it's kind of nice it's been awesome talking to you. That's my and, pleasure. Uh, is there any, do you have a website or anything yourself? Oh, uh, no, no. I, I took a break from that. Um, I, I'm thinking of doing something again that maybe encompasses bicycles and mid-century modern furniture, uh, motorcycles. I, I'm still pretty active in, in my passion, so cool. I'm, a, I'm a sharer by nature. Excellent. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot. And uh, we'll have we'll put a link up to the New England Bicycle Museum. Thanks. And uh, like if that. you want to send me any pictures, I'll put them up there as well. All right. And, we'll do. Uh, thank you very much. All right. Enjoy talking. We will ride soon. Thanks. So in between the two interviews today, I wanted to take a moment of gratitude just to thank you for listening and to apologize for taking so long to get out this episode between the last two. I appreciate you supporting me with this hobby by listening. It is just finding common threads among people who love bicycles and people who love people who love bicycles. So I am committed and excited about doing all the different episodes and interviews that are coming up. I mean, I got a lot of stuff to tell you about. So we got bicycling, cycling and yoga, BMX. We got fixies from around the world. Got interviews with high wheelers, frame builders, every conceivable subject and biking and any others that you come up with. So uh, some are going to be easier for me to get out than others, but uh, I appreciate everybody's patience and appreciate any ideas that you have. Appreciate everybody who checks out and reviews podcasts on iTunes or on Podbeam. That is really helpful if you want to see some pictures of the stuff that we talk about, all types of bikes and genres and some cats on Instagram under Bike Karma. And I want to tell you a story about what happened and ask you what you would have said so i'm out on a club ride i do a high school bike club and we try to get as many rides as we can in before the uh, winter gets here and the other day it was a beautiful day and they're all following me and you know like we're ducks in a row and i put out my hand because we're ambassadors of the cycling community and i put up my hand for a stop and i figure no big deal we're coming to a stop sign and this lady pulls up to me and rolls down her window and starts screaming at me and I am like, what? And she's not really screaming like angry, she's screaming like authoritative. And so she rolls down her window more and she pulls up a couple more inches and I'm at a stop sign, fully stopped. And she says, I don't know what those hand signals mean and nobody else does either. I was totally flabbergasted. I'm like, how, what? You know, you don't know what a hand signal means. I'm lowering my hand. I've got the hand going down and it's, it looks like stop. And we're coming up on a stop sign. You couldn't figure that out. 
and then I'm gonna put my hand towards the left or I'm gonna put my hand towards the right because we've simplified it, in, at least in this state, you can either point your whole arm to the left or the right and that counts instead of the one that was slightly confusing. And I, I just, and then she had dr driven away. So here's my thought. Thinking back, you know, how you always come up with a great, good, great comeback after this situation happens. I'm kind of happy that I didn't say anything at first because, you know, I went through all the 12 stages or whatever. I was angry and then I was like in denial about how she could be so ignorant of some simple hand signals. I went through all 12 stages of dealing with not so smart people. What would you have said? So I know you guys can come up with some really good, clever stuff to have said, some clever comebacks, having the time to prepare. So please leave them up on my Facebook page. It is Bicycle Karma or Bike Karma on Facebook. Look for the cat with the bike on its face. And uh, let's get on with the next interview. Thank you very much for being here. So you're going to help me with pronunciation today, I hope. Okay. All right, so we're here in Reykjavik, oh. Iceland. And we are at a bike shop in Iceland, which is an amazing country. I'm only here for a few days. Good enough for me to come and uh, run into a bike shop here. I've been looking for one all over the place. And I finally ran into this nice gentleman whose name I cannot pronounce properly yet. Oh, it's Hannes. Hannes. Yeah, it's short, it's short for Johannes, but my name is only Hannes. Forget the Yo. Okay, so Hannes. Yeah. Nice to meet you. You too, Tom. So what is it like to bike in Iceland? What, uh, how, would, how do you think it's different from you know, other places? It's very windy, I noticed, the last couple of days. At times, it's very windy. But we had, just had a really nice summer, you know. And I'm an urban cyclist. You know, mm -hmm. I only cycle in town in Reykjavik. Because when you go onto the roads or in the highlands, you, know, you must be very well prepared. And yeah. I'm, you know, five kilometers from me twice a day is what I do. So I have a, I have two bicycles and they're both single speed. Mm -hmm. I don't think you need all these gears in town. And because, except you go into the suburbs, of course, you know, and if you commute to work, maybe 10 or more kilometers, then you would need some gears and spike tires and all that. But here in Reykjavik, you know, you're taken care of. In the winter, they plow the, the cycle lanes Excellent, excellent. So you can cycle all, all years. So you would call it a cycle-friendly city? It is indeed. It's getting more and more. But now we're, we're so inexperienced. We have to look to Amsterdam or Copenhagen and see how they do it, because now we have this trend of racers, high-speed racers. Oh, yeah. And we're all together on the bicycle. It's me going slow or steady, and my children, which are wobbly on the, on the path. So... Yeah, we need to have some rules of maybe a speed limit or something. Yeah, yeah. But no. we're very inexperienced in it, but it's all getting better, you know. It's yeah. a good problem to have so many people out there on bikes. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it could be a worse problem. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And you have to, like, and it's a cooperation. It's not, I can do this, these are my rules, I'm right, allowed right. to do this. We must just all do this together. you got to be part yeah. of a community. Yeah. yeah, the pedestrians, the drivers, and the cyclists. Excellent. So tell me about your shop. Well... Let's start with the name. Yeah, Berlin. Okay. It's bike Store Berlin. Excellent. And it's... We're, we're uh, providing an alternative 
two high-speed racers in Spandex. We're showing the people of Reykjavik that you can't just wear normal clothes. Yeah. Get on a bicycle and cycle from A to B. We have a guy back home who says that. He goes, do you know that you can ride a bike in normal clothes? Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> but I, I see you got Pashley shirts. We know about Pashley brand in the state. Berlin is uh, a brand that we're not too familiar with. No, we ordered them from uh, Germany. The owner of this store is German. Excellent. He's yeah. not from Berlin, but he's from Wesel, yeah. uh, a little town in Germany. And we just ordered these Berlin bikes and put them together, asked for a specific frame, the closed chain box. Uh, but they're in the seats. same spirit as like Pashley's. So yeah. if people know Pashley's, it's like a, it's like a similar, it's a similar, it's a riding bike. It's yeah. a bike you're going to get on and you're going to use for transportation. Very comfortable. Very comfortable. Very heavy. But yeah. the momentum you get behind a heavy bicycle is something that's very underrated, I find. Yeah. They look very upright and comfortable as well. Yeah, they're for easy riding, you know, relaxed riding position. Now, how, how does biking go here in the winter? Well, most people put bike tires on. So they still continue? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah either do or you don't, you know. Some people just, you know, park their bicycle for the, for the winter, but you can... You can ride straight through. I have my other bicycle is uh, a heavy bike, Indian Hero. Oh, nice! And because it's so heavy, it just goes through all of the snow. You know, it's yep. and I, it's a very relaxed position. So when it starts sliding, I'm my whole weight is on top of the back tire, so it doesn't go un, from under me just straight away. And it's very relaxed. You know, you don't go very fast, but you get there. Yeah, nice, nice. And then we've just got the fat bike here. Yeah, I saw your, your high-wheeler out front. That's what caught my attention. Yeah. It just dragged my wife up here. And now she's, she's probably taken off without me. But uh, I got sucked in by that. That is cool. And the yeah. fat tire bikes, are they popular around here yet? Or are they just starting? They're just starting. You know, We're getting a few more in next week. And you know, we're thinking it'll be great on, you know, in the snow. And that one's got like a Springer front suspension. Yeah, it's in it? the Loew fork. Wow. And it's a suspension fork without any moving parts. That's cool. Yeah, which is nice because you—that's the, the weak point of all suspension—is the two parts going yep. to. Yep. But, Very cool. Yeah. And the penny fast. You should try it. All right. And so I have a a question that I ask everyone in my podcast that I interview. Okay. What's the weirdest thing you've seen on the side of the road while you're biking? The weirdest thing? How do you mean? So once, I was riding alongside the road, and I saw a pool ball, number 10 pool ball, a clown nose, and a smashed bottle of whiskey. Okay. <laughs> Something's going on. Tells there. the story. Yeah. <laughs> See, I can't really, you know, I, I think I go into a, some sort of a trance when I'm riding my bicycle. Yeah, yeah, you know, we all do. I just keep the security up and the head clear. I, well, then that's good. You haven't seen yeah. anything disturbing on the side of the road. So well, that's so a good thing. Yeah, there's no, you know, the paths, the cycle paths are taken really good care of, you know. So, and we are all using them together, and there is a growing community of cyclists. The weirdest thing I'm hearing about is someone stringing a wire over a cycle path. See, that's, that's ridiculous. Yeah. I think the person doing it is, doesn't understand the consequences. He, he's not a cyclist. We had a lady who had sabotaged some mountain biking trails 
in the States okay. as well. And she didn't realize the consequences that you can, you yeah. can murder somebody I by know. doing that. I yeah. know. So, you know, that's the weirdest thing I'm hearing about. But I haven't really seen anything not that I can think of under pressure. Well, that's good. Yeah. That's good. So if you're in Reykjavik and you want to visit the shop, you want to tell people where they would find it? Well, we're at the old harbor okay. in Reykjavik. And, you know, next to the sea baron. I think that's the most people will hear about, the sea baron. Okay, and they've got some very cool-looking bikes from a variety of different styles here. So thank you very much. Thank I you very much, it. Tom. Well, you've reached the end of another episode of Bike Karma. Thanks for coming along for the ride. I'd like to thank Jim and Hannes, uh, everybody who said some nice things online, uh, David Sanchez, 499, KMK0036, Della Powitz, Bull and Ryan, thank you very much for following on Podbean. Uh, Kenny Woods Open asked about Patreon accounts or anything like that. I have nothing like that. Uh, I just really appreciate anytime anybody leaves a review or uh, follows me. So uh, if you get a chance to leave a review or or following on Facebook, Instagram, Podbean, or iTunes, that would make me feel great. So thank you. I'd like to thank Keller Glass and the band Mobjack at mobjackmusic.com for both our opening and closing theme songs. They are awesome. I want to thank Bacon the Bunny for helping me with some technical stuff. And thank you to all the people who have agreed to do future interviews. Bike Karma, Bicycle Karma, and the truly awesome artistic cat with the bicycle on its face drawn by my daughter are all intellectual property of the Bike Karma podcast and Tom Brown. Trademark and all rights reserved. Thank you very much for listening, and until next time, keep it wheel. Keep it wheel.